Richard Spencer is a neo-Nazi. There is a reason they're shouting blood and soil, which to people who don't know the history of Nazism, mm -hmm. which in German is Blut und Boden. And Bloden? Blut and Boden. Boden. B-O-D-E-N. Yeah, is that the so beginning of that Def Leppard song? Uh, yeah, that's what he did. <laughs> what, what did I say? What Def Leppard song is Def Leppard song. Is Def Leppard the band with the guy with no... Let's not get off track. Because I don't think he's... He has one arm, but he's also not a Nazi, just for the record. Now a new method of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast this is your almost weekly mostly weekly generally weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle the people that make it and occasionally ourselves and camille foster of free think this is episode 68 recorded on the l early afternoon of wednesday august 16th 2017 um, I've got about two and a half hours before I have to run out of here and go catch a plane to Lisbon. But I don't know what else is happening after that because I haven't paid any attention. You're only saying that because last episode went like three hours and everyone loved it. <laughs> and so you want to reduce you like no, scheduling no. flights. I'm, I'm actually just thinking. Make a heart I'm out. thinking out loud. Uh, that gentleman um, helping to bring me out of the uh, the cloud that is my own mind is Matt Welch, editor at large of Reason Magazine, who is back. In New York City, after his journey abroad, Whoa, delighted, back, delighted to see back him. In the New York um, and after pretending he couldn't get an internet connection last week, and Michael Moynihan. Hi, the sultry, dulcet town sounds of uh, Michael Moynihan, the yeah, uh, the sexy guy from Vice News Tonight, who does Voice of God things and other interesting, important yeah. things there as well, and makes lots of potent, thoughtful observations here. I hope so. And I'm glad to be joined by both of you today. Thanks for having us, Camille, in your studio. Yeah, my studio. Your studio. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I just it's get to I get to kind of MC um, and uh, corral, um, but it is it's my privilege and honor to be. Why here are you going to Portugal, you, by gentlemen? Um, this is uh, I think I can say it now. This is uh, our my wife and I. It's our baby moon. What? Uh, yeah. What? We knew Sorry. this for months, but we're going to be a surprise. <laughs> what? You're no, having a baby? I'm, yeah, yeah. She's, oh, my um, God. Who's the, who's the father? I, oh I think it's me, God. but we're going to be sure. We're going to check it out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully, she looks just like my amazing, beautiful, remarkable, uh, impressive, high-quality, high-caliber wife. Um, I would agree with all of those things. Yeah. And please don't think that I'm hitting on her. Because no, it's fine. I, she is pregnant. Rich, pregnant. Yeah, no, and it's fine. that would just be really gross. No, if she lots wasn't of pregnant, men do. It, it, really? Lots of men still do. Yeah. And really? which I, I want, I want them to, I want them to try. I don't want you to be crude and disgusting. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's nice to know that I, I did well. And for you to affirm that decision by saying, Hey baby. Yeah. Damn, but can I talk to you? Yeah. All right. Well, you have a good day, girl. What? what I if, want. I want to know that that's happening on a regular basis because it's like, yeah. Is that how you right. do it? By the way, because I, don't, I don't. I don't know. I don't have a lot I've of been, success in this department. I've been with think. the same woman since I was sixteen. There, I have zero game. I don't you know have no anything game. about women whatsoever. I only I can know imagine things your, about my wife your game. What would your game be? Like, uh, I, like, uh, I, really, some I was reading a uh, yeah. Murray Rothbard, but uh, <laughs> excuse me. Actually, Who? I try that with her. It doesn't work. So, it doesn't work well. I don't know why I'm doing the Eddie Murphy white guy voice. Is that is that my voice? <laughs> yeah. uh, oh. So I think what would happen here is that I'd yeah. like to you know maybe have a dinner a dinner with you of some sort. We should yeah. look at the nuance of the situation. <laughs> and uh, why if we yeah. if we essentialize the racial yeah. question. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're not going to get any. Get any. I mean, this you better good. stick with that woman. With because... a real politica. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I appreciate, I appreciate Matt's, all that. Matt's, That's great, Matt. Matt. Matt, on the other hand, yeah. has a French wife, mm -hmm. and you've been with her for 20 odd years, too, right? We just celebrated our 20th uh, wedding anniversary while we were. 20th wedding anniversary. 20. Good God. You look pretty young, I have to say. Uh, it's you all did. on the outside. It's uh, on the inside. It's just oh my god! On the inside, apart. you're like you're like Andy Rooney. I mean, not just, not just as <laughs> my heart my heart so. black with death, but uh, all the other appendages are that's just, racist. Well, they're no all good. pickled no from all your consumption of booze. Yeah, that's the other thing. Speaking of which, this uh, you know we're doing this on an afternoon. This is yeah. Uh, uh, there ain't no booze here. Yeah, no. Yeah, booze. no, that's true. I have an iced latte. <laughs> yeah, which that's... is apparently caffeine the only only drug you're on right now. I am. I'm I'm free of all. Um, Substances. Yeah. Uh, not, I mean, uh, it, if you haven't listened to this podcast in the past, I should clarify that it's not as if I come up, you know, to the studio and smoking heroin as I walk in or something. But, you know, the, the only on Thursday, the helper drugs <laughs> that you're flying on right now. Yes. They help you. Yes. Um, but you get them from a pharmacy. Uh, I, seven days. Right. That, the street yeah. pharmacist. But, but wait, let's just to clarify. Yeah. yeah. Moynihan, yeah. Uh, you're still drinking like a terrible irish italian right oh, fuck yeah <laughs> yeah i'm just not i'm just not on amphetamines all the time <laughs> no no so, you know. more, more for me yeah um yeah i am i am medically enhanced today so you you are in uh, in good hands um <laughs> the only thing i'm on is viagra so let's have a <laughs> here with us. good good for you um well so gross there's there's plenty <laughs> oh my gosh so weird there's plenty going on today there's plenty that's worth talking about earlier this week, I actually had a conversation with DeRay uh, McKesson, who is one of the more prominent figures in the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a leaderless movement, as I'm sure DeRay would tell me. Um, so it wouldn't be appropriate to say he's a leader of Black Lives Matter. But he, DeRay and his blue Patagonia vests are perhaps among the most recognizable figures um, within that movement. So we had a, a conversation. I don't know what we'll do with that yet. I'm telling you that at the front end of this podcast, there's a chance we'll append it to the tail end of this podcast, um, but no one else has listened to it but me, and we'll, we'll see. Um, but in addition to that, the most important news of the week appears to be that President Donald Trump has laid out, finally, his long-awaited infrastructure program. For a second yeah. time. Like, we had, this is the second infrastructure this is, week. This is it. Did you see the Laura Ingram, Charles Krauthammer exchange? About the uh, infrastructure project? Well, no. The, um, the third world uh, were, system of the United it States? Was, it was quite something to watch. I mean, I don't watch... Um, that network or any of the cable networks anymore. I just, you know, my, much like getting off of Adderall, uh, I need a cleanse, a detox from some of that stuff. And Colonics. Hor horrible. But uh, uh, so essentially she's on there and, um, you know, uh, on this panel and Charles Krauthammer uh, says, you know, that, that Donald Trump's performance at the at the uh, press conference yesterday, yesterday being Tuesday, was a moral disgrace, which I think is a good and accurate description of it. And she said, you know, <laughs> she was like, you know, it's the media and it's the media and all it is is the media. And they're just focusing on the fact that someone's murdered by a white supremacist, which is a completely, you know, throwaway story. <laughs> and it should, it, should, it should all be about infrastructure. This was about infrastructure. Oh, she really yeah, yeah, she she went played there. the infrastructure yeah, card? Yeah. She kept on saying, like, you know, you're turning the focus away from what Donald Trump is trying to do. And the media is uh, blocking mm. uh, uh, this uh, fantastic 
this fantastic uh, uh, story about infrastructure and bridges and something. There is no story there too, which is uh, the other interesting thing is yeah. that it's just blathering about infrastructure with nothing happening, saying I want to spend a ton of money. Laura Ingram, the mighty conservative who I assume loves spending tons and tons of money in infrastructure, was just trying to divert attention. But watch the clip. It's pretty interesting because it is really, really acrimonious. Uh, and, you know, Laura Ingram was just like hurling this, this abuse at Charles Crowdham. Yeah, talking about the moral plane. Well, I'm not yeah. going to go on the moral plane as high as the moral plane as, as you are. Uh, Ingraham uh, also uh, sent her uh, Twitter followers at our friend uh, Kat Timpf, um yesterday because Kat was on the air yeah. uh, with a specialist at the moment that the press conference stopped. Mm -hmm. And there's a clip that's uh, gone as viral as the Crowdhammer yeah. clip of Kat just saying, I can't believe I just saw that. That was disgusting. Um, she, uh, she, looked, she looked like shaken. Yeah, she, she was. She looked visibly. Shaken. She was genuinely rattled, but she was also pretty eloquent. And uh, and Laura uh, Ingram uh, 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 had a dismissive tweet, and which is the backstory is kind of interesting here too, because Ingram's going to get a show on Fox News, and it's possible that she's going to get the show that Temps on uh, the specialist. Yeah, they might yeah. put the five from nine back down to five o'clock, and they might bounce the specialists, whose host Eric Bowling. Is on some kind of a leave, I guess. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, so he's uh, at a camp in upstate New York for people who take pictures of their cocks and stuff. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Yeah. Camp uh, dick pic, camp wiener, uh, camp mushroom cap. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, what? It's the name of the camp. Don't give me a hard time. I, no, that yeah, makes name sense. The damn thing. That's actually a really appropriate name. I so. retweeted. It's uh, in the woods. That's why they <laughs> named it that way. If anyone follows Cat Timp on Twitter, she's always engaging with her completely uh, idiotic, mouth-breathing detractors uh, constantly. It makes Otherwise you, known as her followers too. Her followers. <laughs> she's on. She's um, on a network that attracts that. Um, and you think like, oh, Cat's exaggerating. Well, I found out uh, uh, yesterday because I retweeted the Mediaite clip on this. And I included a quote of it. Uh, I started getting CCs on all this kind of stuff uh, uh, for the last, uh, you know, uh, uh, 20 some odd hours of people just saying, we're going to shut you up in your rear cock hole. Uh, yeah, oh I saw God. that one. Yeah, I uh, saw she retweeted that. And, yeah. But a, a bunch of other just in. I don't even know what that means. I, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I just. I'd be kind of excited with the Viagra. Yeah, it's just, just a weird <laughs> way of putting I think, it. I think I know what they mean. Yeah, but just. The, the amount why of. Why bother phrasing it that way? <laughs> the amount of uh, intellectual retardation, and I don't mean that in, in any kind of way to. Yeah, yeah. To, Back, backwards. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh -huh. actually, in that sense. Literal, uh, literal retardation. Is. Stunning yeah. to watch. I mean, I, I safely estimate that I've seen 150 totally illiterate uh, and uh, and and just painfully stupid. They like cat temp. It just works for Antifa uh, kind of thing. <laughs> That's a good one because they might have even spelled the the words right. And you realize this is Laura Ingram's core audience. This is yeah. this is this is the thing. Well, I don't know that it's her core audience. Let's let's be let's be let's be fair. I mean, right? have you ever? Let's, you know, no, look. I mean, I've I've been I've been on on the network as well as have you Matt and there are plenty of times where people come at me and say nasty things um, I've done Charlemagne the God and Andrew Schultz show Brilliant Idiots and lots of people sure. hit me with nasty things afterwards I don't know if that's the core audience I know that there is some segment of the audience who is all too eager to go on the internet and confront me and say that's why you're a coon and an Uncle Tom I don't know. It's a plurality of the uh, of the audience that does that, even if it's a plurality Just of the feedback that you get. But one one more related point um, about Cat before we lose the thread, before I forget anyways, Cat is 
is a really interesting person to have on a show like that because she has views that are very similar to mine and I won't attribute them to anyone else, but she's a libertarian. And as such, she takes some positions that conservatives are all too happy to hear her articulate and some positions that progressives um, are all too happy to hear her articulate. And when she does, um, she comes in for this extreme visceral hatred from both outfits when she is disagreeing with them, so much so that she is getting nasty and despicable threats from people on the right on the Internet. And weeks prior, she was the person having water dumped on her head by a total stranger in the middle of New York City. Yeah. Um, this is that a, is insane. That is insane. It was at a Ben Kissel event, right? Or, I don't, uh, I don't the, know if it was a Ben Kissel event. I, I, keep, Brooklyn, yeah. I have weird feelings about it because I wish yeah. I was there because I know I would have caught him. I actually texted him. But I wish I, I'm glad week. I wasn't yeah. there because yeah. had I caught him, yeah. um, it would have been a problem. You would have con- committed assault battery? Um, I, I is, think... it, is it assault if I'm capturing the bad person who just threw things at Cat and I punch him in the mouth while I'm capturing him? I mean, I mean, imagine if the police officer is just capturing the bad guy and also ruthlessly beating him. No, you're not allowed to do that. But I think that, that well, this story, I mean, the most interesting uh, part of it is just actually watching it afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, what happened on Saturday, Saturday is horrifying. Yeah, we should do some way. unpacking with that too, yeah. And, you know, I don't, I think I was talking to you about this before, before uh, the show, Camille, is that, you know, you don't really have to belabor that point and, and sort of virtue signal on something that's so obvious. The Nazis are bad. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, good people think this stuff is very bad and only bad people think this stuff is good. And, you know, you don't have to wave your hands too long to say Nazis. Um, I would not be too upset if they were all run over by a steamroller and we could just pitch them in the ocean. They add <laughs> nothing to society and I think they're disgusting pigs. Um, but what's been interesting is that, you know, five days out or whatever it is, just watching the reaction to it has been really stunning on a number of levels. But I, I, you notice that more people talk about politics in these days in the sense of the people they're against than any ideas that they're for. I mean, that's what Laura Ingram is doing. I mean, she doesn't have any any core principles. I mean, you know, this woman has been saying, I'm a conservative and takes certain positions. And then, you know, the the winds change and all of a sudden she's she's defending Donald Trump, who doesn't appear to anyone who knows anything about conservatism um, to be a great standard bearer for conservatism. I mean, it's funny, this, you know, watching Donald Trump Trump, if you try to divine the politics of what he's saying, you're not going to get anywhere because he doesn't really have politics. He's not a particularly bright guy. I think this is fairly obvious at this point. What you see with him is somebody who doesn't want to denounce anyone that's on his team or seems to be on his team. There's some good people and there's some bad people. No, there are not. This was a white nationalist rally. These were neo-Nazis. If you watch Vice News Tonight's uh, piece that I'm incredibly proud to be associated with it, I had nothing to do with it, which is very, 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 very good. Um, You know, there are people marching with Tiki torches saying Jew will not replace us. Jew, and they're they're chanting this. Mm-hmm. If you are mixed into that audience and they are one good person, quote unquote good person, that's when you beat a very hasty retreat. And that was the previous night as they were gathering. Which Trump singled out. He's like, yeah. uh, he, when he was talking to the media, he's like, you saw the pictures. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the car stuff. I'm talking about the night before. 
I've yeah, seen, those I've, are Nazis. I've seen the same pictures you mm-hmm. have. They're these, neo-Nazis. These are, uh, there are some fine people there. And if you notice, by the way, there's one interesting thing about, um, not one interesting, a million interesting things about the, the, the uh, Vice News Tonight report. One was a guy named Matthew Heimbach, who, if people who pay attention to this you know, world of sociopaths will remember, went to Towson State University or something and created some white identity club on campus about mm-hmm. six years it's ago. a white student union. Yeah, and it became, yeah. it became a, you know, a flashpoint. And this guy has grown, um, you know, into sort of grown, isn't grown intellectually. He's flattened and he's expanded because he's now a fat Nazi, if you see him in the piece. Mm-hmm. But in, there's a moment in it where it's like th- these people are so serious about their Nazism that it's not about just hating Jews and just hating black people, which, of course, is bog standard for them. But he's yelling at the camera, like, you know, sort of, what do you want? And he's like, these people over here, these Antifa people, and, and it's a really interesting thing that no one's pointed out. What he says is he says, you know, they're like multiculturalists and they're communists. And then he denounces them for being bourgeois capitalists, too. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, yeah. I mean, that's a classic of the kind of Mussolini-type fascism and then ultimately national socialism, too, is that they don't like the bourgeois capitalists. They usually say globalists or something like that. But, you know, that's how serious these people are about Nazism is that they understand the kind of n- nuances and the like economic policy of Nazism fashion. It's not I mean, they're they're bad. These are bad people. Nothing good. I want to happen uh, in that I much. want to pick up on, on something that you said, because I uh, somewhat disagree with it. And I think it, it has uh, it has relevance to uh, the broader discussion about what you know, does Trump have a position ideologically? Yeah. I, I think that there he does have a. <clears throat> a a common position with Laura Ingram, and that's been true with, throughout her career, and that's also common with the the alt right people. Um, which is not to say that Laura Ingram or Donald Trump are alt right themselves, but that common position <coughs> relies on uh, a kind of an apocalyptic insecurity, a, a sense that there's a very uh, a thin tissue, a membrane that separates us and the things that we think are valuable about our culture, the Judeo-Christian culture, if you want to call it that, and they do oftentimes, or the West, which they might want to call it, um, but that some combination of multicultural, elite, uh, uh, nationless bureaucrats are going to combine with Islamic terrorists and then uh, second world, third world kind of hordes to uh, erase the essential identity of who we think that we are. Um, and, uh, and I think that is a real genuine feeling. I think it's a wrong feeling. It's, it's, it gets tied up and, and obviously applied to things like immigration policy and refugee policy, but also to trade um, that this feeling of, I mean, whenever Donald Trump says, and he says this constantly in a lot of different places, if we don't do X, we won't have a country anymore. He said this in the conversation with uh, the Mexican president. If we don't do something about our sixty billion dollar trade deficit, we just won't have a country. This, right. That it's not true. We will have a country, self evidently. But it's interesting that that is the expression of what you're worried about. That that, that it's it's this it's this membrane. I mean, look at V Dare, which is a Virginia uh, the oh, oh, kind of a white nationalist uh, Peter, site. Peter Brimlow. Yeah. Peter Brimlow's site, um, yeah. uh, which is named after Virginia Dare, who was the first white girl born on the United States soil. Right. Uh, I think they were just kicked off by PayPal today or GoDaddy or they had some yeah. uh, trouble today. Um, hmm. But uh, they have a similar sense of of uh, of uh, insecurity about what yeah. might happen. Um, uh, and, and, it, and it's and 
I think addressing that worldview, and it's a very kind of Bannonite, Steve Miller, uh, Stephen Miller uh, type of thing, um, is ultimately uh, from a an, an argumentative and kind of persuasion uh, point of view, it's the place where you need to hit. Because, of course, everyone hates Nazis with, with very few exceptions. I would think probably Donald Trump wakes up in the mirror, looks in the mirror at himself, says, I hate Nazis. I presume that's what he says, mm-hmm. just because it's hard for me to imagine um, most people uh, uh, liking Nazis in, in any sense. But that's he good. shares those uh, senses as do uh, as does a semi broad swath of the right. Genuinely uh, speaking, I, I'm sure that uh, Camille's going to want to talk about Tucker Carlson later because people were hitting him on Twitter for that. But I think Tucker has always had that view. Also in his uh, public career, he has this sense that um, that the essential nature when people talk about like the democratic values of of uh, of uh, the United States and how that's going to be undermined because the people coming into California and Texas don't share our values uh-huh. and they're going to vote wrong. Right, and these kind of stuff. That's an Ann Coulter view. Tucker has had that view for a long time. Sure. There's a reason why the Richard Spencers of the world like Tucker Carlson. He's talking about this kind of stuff in that way. And I'm not saying that at all that Tucker is waking up in the morning saying that he's a Nazi. I'm sure he says, I'm not a Nazi. I hate Nazis. However, Mm -hmm. that apocalyptic sense of insecurity, um, that sense that there is an identity, a discrete identity that is going to be watered down by this invasion, uh, uh, malice of forethought or not, of, of a type of person, and also by the fecklessness of elites, that is a real thing on the right and it has been and it's a wrong thing mm-hmm. and I think addressing that wrong thing will ultimately be as useful hopefully more useful and elucidating than just trying to say this Nazi equals this politician or commentator that I don't like there is something apocalyptic about core ideas on both the left and the right when you say we won't have a country here anymore one must backfill a great deal in order to try to connect with that sentiment. Does it mean that the white race is going to be extinct, white genocide, that is the extreme alt-right perspective? Or does it mean that there won't be factory work and there won't be coal mining plants anymore? Um, And as a consequence, there won't be jobs here. So we have to do something about that, the economic protectionist perspective. Um, And on the left, the apocalyptic view is markets are terrifying, particularly those banksters who are looking to take everything away from us. Um, It's the Sanders oligarchy. uh, Yeah, we've got to strengthen the unions. Corporations are really pernicious and they're going to do bad things to us if we don't check them. That's that's an acceptable version of that argument. There is a more extreme version of that argument, which has begun to gain prominence and perhaps is increasingly gaining more and more prominence. I don't want to go there yet. The reason why we're talking about this um, march to unite the right, various factions from the alt-right who decided to get together and have uh, this march. Um, But a young woman, Heather Heyer, 32 years old, dies in a gruesome seeming attack. And I'm not saying seeming to qualify it for any any reason. I mean, it looked deliberate. It looked malicious. She was attacked. 34 other people were injured. Um, 19 or so at, at the time of the accident. 15 um, related to other events. And there were two police officers who also died in a helicopter crash. Um, there was probably about a thousand cops on the ground. Uh, there are no clear obvious definitive estimates of what the crowd size was. There were two to 6,000 people expected to attend um, in terms of right-wing extremists. Might have been closer to 500, perhaps higher than that. 
Um, I've seen some numbers estimating around a thousand counter protesters. None of that is quite clear. But Charlottesville is a small town, 50,000 people in this town. And for three days, essentially, they had a bunch of craziness going on. Friday night, they had the march on campus and people are approaching this statue with tiki torches surrounding Mm it. Um, That was a really awful scene. Um, Blood and soil was screamed over and over again. Um, I need the two of you to explain why, Mm -hmm. uh, because I I don't understand. (laughs) Um, And the very next day is when all hell breaks loose. They were planning to, to protest the removal of this Confederate statue. And That went sideways. The crowds were too difficult to control. Permission to host the event removed. There were skirmishes all along the way. And around 119, the president tweets out, we all must be united and condemn all that hate stands for. There is no place for this kind of violence in America. Let's come together as one, Donald Trump. By 142, there is this tragic accident, Um, not accident, attack. Um, it's a terrorist attack. Yeah, almost two o'clock, right? Yeah. Three o'clock, the driver is taken into custody. Almost simultaneous with that, Donald Trump is making his remarks. Yeah. The remarks for which he has been criticized severely. Um, and those remarks are being criticized not so much for what he said, but for what he didn't say. But we're closely following the terrible events unfolding in Charlottesville, Virginia. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. It's been going on for a long time in our country. Not Donald Trump, not Barack Obama. It's been going on for a long, long time. It is no place in America. What is vital now is a swift restoration of law and order and the protection of innocent lives. No citizen should ever fear for their safety and security in our society. And no child should ever be afraid to go outside and play or be with their parents and have a good time. I just got off the phone with the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, And we agreed that the hate and the division must stop and must stop right now. We have to come together as Americans with love for our nation and true affection, really, and I, I say this so strongly, true affection for each other. Our country is doing very well in so many ways. We have record, just absolute record employment. We have unemployment, the lowest it's been in almost 17 years. We have companies pouring into our country, Foxconn and car companies and so many others. They're coming back to our country. We're renegotiating trade deals to make them great for our country and great for the American worker. We have so many incredible things happening in our country. So when I watch Charlottesville, to me, it's very, very sad. I want to salute the great work of the state and local police in Virginia. Incredible people, law enforcement, incredible people. And also the National Guard. They've really been working smart and working hard. 
They've been doing a terrific job. Federal authorities are also providing tremendous support to the governor. He thanked me for that. And we are here to provide whatever other assistance is needed. We are ready, willing, and able. Above all else, we must remember this truth. No matter our color, creed, religion, or political party, we are all Americans first. We love our country. We love our God. We love our flag. We're proud of our country. We're proud of who we are. So we want to get the situation straightened out in Charlottesville, and we want to study it. And we want to see what we're doing wrong as a country where things like this can happen. My administration is restoring the sacred bonds of loyalty between this nation and its citizens. But our citizens must also restore the bonds of trust and loyalty between one another. We must love each other, respect each other, and cherish our history and our future together. So important. We have to respect each other. Ideally, we have to love each other. Um, complete babble. Yeah. Means nothing. Ineloquent. Not, Ineloquent, not particularly good. No. I mean, look, <laughs> it's worse than ineloquent. It's, it's narcissistic. It's narcissistic. From Super, the jump. In, incredibly yeah, from narcissistic. The jump. This yeah. didn't begin with Donald Trump. Uh, have you looked at our employment numbers? Yeah. It's, I mean, look, well, well, there, I, I say one thing. On yes. Yeah. Is that you know, I, I'm not one. I mean, people who know me and have heard this show know that I'm a bit cynical about stuff like this. But... <laughs> I have to say, and this is the one moment I've said that I've said to myself, you know, the president in a situation like this is ineffective in almost any way, mm-hmm. you know, almost every way. It's just, you know, creating jobs, et cetera. This is all nonsense. And, you know, <laughs> during this clip playing, Camille says something about the Foxconn thing being a complete Total scam. Total nonsense. The carrier bringing jobs back to carry, complete scam also. A million jobs. You know, nope. I mean, the president ha- does not have the, the, and by the way, he only had the possibility to do anything with carrier because carrier had government contracts and he was uh, turning with the screws on them. Mike and Pence. Then, yeah, and then giving them subsidies, and uh, which they were said that they were going to use later to further automate the plant. Um, people forgot, people missed that when the, the CEO of carrier was on Jim Cramer. But you know the president. The president can do one thing, and I don't put a lot of stock in this. But it, this is the time to use that airy and and sort of pointless word of being presidential. I mean, can, <laughs> can one not expect the president? Not you can't unite people. He said, then Barack Obama came to united people. President, you know, Trump unite people. The president doesn't have the ability to do something like that. But the president does have the ability to come up and and make some sort of firmly moral statement on the immoral activities that were going on in Charlottesville, which includes the murder of a young woman who was protesting. Right. Yeah. And which which I, I don't know how much he knew about that at that particular, at that time. particular as, point. As I said, but it's, it's that said, an he, hour, he maybe had, an hour and 40 minutes before he had the, the, the capability after that and a couple of other tweets, press conferences, etc. to address it directly. He has not, he hasn't even called the woman's family. I mean, I find that absolutely appalling. He did in a follow up press conference, to be fair. 
He did say that he appreciated that the parents said nice words about him. I, it's amazing. He did, he did it's say amazing. that. It's amazing. And this is, yes. and this is, I can't remember who was writing this the other day. Is that the, this is the thing that dom, dominates uh, Donald Trump's ideology. It's not even ideology. It's, right. it's that narcissism is that when people say nice things about him, he will be on their side, period. It is like a mental disorder that I'm sure my therapist could give a name to. It's probably in, in the DSM. You know, I hate everybody who likes me because I don't trust them. <laughs> well, it's, uh, who the hell would he like said a guy that like com- where he said that he liked Bill de Blasio because he had heard <laughs> that Bill de Blasio had said something nice about him at a party. It's actually true. He said that. And this, the, the Putin thing, too, is that he is a, uh, a you know, fan of Putinism. And because he is on board with the kind of America first ideology, which means pulling our troops out of and shrinking NATO, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No, Putin said a few nice things about him. And, you know, Putin's sitting in the Kremlin going, could it possibly be this easy? To get this guy on my side, I just go on television and say, love him. Great. Can work with him. And then Donald Trump gets all excited about it. And there you have a realigned policy towards Russia. It, it is effectively that simple. Well, Kim, Kim Jong-un had nice things said about him and he, he didn't even have to do anything. He was a smart cookie. I know. Were, and he I mean, we, he said nice things almost, about Kim Jong-un. And this, yeah. this is a man who is we history books. You tend to write these things about George W. Bush and Barack Obama and even George W. Bush. You say there's some complications to his personality. He was reading an Andrew Roberts book about the history of the English speaking peoples while he was, you know, kind of prosecuting the Iraq war and did X, Y, and Z wrong. You're trying to find these layers in a president. There are no layers to this man. It is incredibly thin. It is the first layer of the onion skin, and that is it. There's nothing else. But and it's is. really sad to, to because you want there to be to say this is part of some grand strategy, uh, but it isn't. Yeah, that's that's usually well. That that was the initial accusation. Um, from a lot of people, it wasn't so much that he was inelegant and inarticulate and that he is usually awful at these things. Um, it, it's almost as if they forget that this is the guy who, what, three weeks ago uh, gave a speech to the Boy Scouts of America during which he described a man losing his ability to effectively have his way with any woman he wants to on account of his incredible fortune. Um that's Donald Trump. He gives that speech to Boy Scouts. Um, the the assertion that has been made um, and was made throughout the weekend was that he was Rasputin-like and brilliantly sending secret signals to particular factions of the alt-right, specifically to white supremacists, indicating his affection and fealty for them by failing to mention the words white supremacy in that initial conversation and by saying on both sides, the attribution seemed to be there. So, yeah, I, which he, I mean, what do you the think? The reporting yeah. came afterwards that he injected that. That was an ad. You can always tell with with, uh, with uh, Trump whenever uh-huh. there's a the hyphen and there's a believe me and or if he repeats himself, that's yeah, when he's it's usually when he's that's when he's adding uh, emphasis and ad living. Um, but the stuff that he was actually reading. Above all else, we must remember this truth. No matter our color, creed, religion, or political party, we are all Americans first. That's a very, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, on one hand, it's very Barack Obama-like. On another hand, it's very Teddy Roosevelt-like. And maybe both things are places that I don't feel particularly comfortable with in in the uh, in the context of Teddy Roosevelt. That was all. Uh, and people who uh, ended up quoting him later, it was just like, there is... 
that was a way for saying assimilate bitches um, uh, in that same paragraph, which again is written. <laughs> no, in the, in, the, in, in the context of Teddy Roosevelt in a famous quote that I don't have in front of me. Yeah. But that talks about that in almost the same language that it. I, I mean, I, I hear you. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying that yeah. it's a thing that Teddy Roosevelt thing uh-huh. totally exists. Yeah. And that was the spirit in which that was written. And so I'm saying that this could be seen as having echoes of that. Or could, it, could be. And it could not be. Yeah. It, Just it, wake the yeah. fuck up. Uh-huh. Um, but the we must love each other, respect each other and cherish our history um, in the context of a – alt-right protest about a Confederate statue in which your remarks do not name – there's a subject that's missing in this in these remarks. The protagonist is missing in this remarks. The protagonist is both sides in this that, uh-huh. and hatred. The protagonist is not the people who ran a tiki torch uh, rally – in the written part saying that we must cherish our history in that speech, it's, I don't say it's a dog whistle. I, I'm saying – Well, it's not a dog whistle because he said that he said it explicitly it's, it's on ex- Tuesday. It's, ex- it's well, explicit. Robert E. Lee is like, you know, this, well, this, is, is, uh, I, this is a man – I don't know the exact no, quote yeah. there, but it's like, you know, he was explicitly talking about, you know, well, there's a slippery slope thing here too. Down will to George they, Washington. Will they come for George Washington? Will they come for, for Thomas Jefferson? I just want to be – Is sh- that true? I mean, possibly, but that's not relevant right now. Now, well, it, it is it is it is relevant, um, and it's relevant because that is the reason why the march happened at all. In fact, the protesters—if it wasn't relevant, the protesters wouldn't be tearing these no, statues down at that very moment. George Washington is not relevant. The relevant point that he was making was this broader conversation about whether or not people who were involved in the in slavery or involved in uh, slave stuff in general had any of that taint might be sort of the next people to receive criticism. It's so interesting. When Trump talked about the the Confederate statue, they asked him, what do you think? He said, I think that those people ought to be making those decisions for themselves. Good answer. Which is a good answer. Um, and then went on to say, but here's a question for you. Where does it stop? George, does, do we keep a monument of George Washington because he owns slaves? This is not the best argument if one is actually trying to defend keeping those Confederate statues it is, however, not a completely ridiculous argument to make. But quick point, though. But why is it? I mean, you hear these people that make this argument to keep Confederate statues up, that, that you know, to not erase our history, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Then why is it that Nazis from all over the country, and as a matter of fact, all over the world, mm-hmm. because the Swedish newspaper I was reading the other day said a number of Swedish neo-Nazis had actually showed up in Charlottesville, that that they are rallying at the base of a Robert E. Lee statue. Why do, There's a particular reason. Why people dress up in gray and pretend to get shot and pretend to shoot other people and then fall on the ground because they're why do why do why do some people why the the hazard brothers have confederate flag on top of their car sure like the truth is that southernness is a thing and the detoxification of those old things making them new and making them something that you can take pride in and that your tribe can be proud of, that is a thing that happens. I am not saying it's good. I'm not defending it. I am doing, I am doing something else. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a preamble. I feel deeply uncomfortable about taking this position. I am not a contrarian. No, no, I'm not. It's, it's no bullshit. I'm oh, not a contrarian. I clearing my nose. I, I take positions on various things that 90% of people agree with. And there's other stuff that I just, I fundamentally disagree with. Um, 
and here's my issue with respect to the this entire um, situation. And it's not dissimilar from an experience I had in college. I was a uh, in very serious evangelical. I taught a Bible study on campus. I chartered a Christian fraternity on campus. And most of my closest friends to this day are people that I met at that particular time in my life. Um, I am someplace else now. Um, As a consequence, I don't have some of those convictions that I had before. Um, My life would be meaningfully improved And the quality of my relationships with many of those people would be meaningfully improved if I didn't disagree profoundly with some of the things I believed at that particular point in time. I feel that way today. I've had to reach out. I've had to reach out to reach out to some people to like talk to them and say, is it is it am I crazy here for taking this particular view on this, doing it for substantive reasons? When I read we must love each other, respect each other and cherish our history and our future together. So important. We have to respect each other. Ideally, we have to love each other. Like my instinct is to give people the benefit of the doubt in the broadest sense. I've got to have a very good reason to condemn you. And in this particular context, what Donald Trump seems to be offending in, in that first remarks right afterwards is being narcissistic, is being ineloquent, is not having a very good sense for when it when it's appropriate to pay respect to the family, to talk about sort of the victims there, perhaps to just encourage people to go home. Let's we'll, we'll talk about this. We'll continue to monitor it. That's what he should have done. He didn't do that. But the two things that he seems to have been most maligned for are suggesting that both sides were had some culpability. Um, and so the assertion now, and this is actually the first time I'm hearing it, that an allusion to history in the context of talking about us loving each other, cherish our history and our future. Why can't it just be someone's verbal flourish, history and future? Is it Is it the proper context in which to do this? Since when does Donald Trump do sane and reasonable things? He does a lot of frenetic, spooky, silly shit. He just does. So important is what he says after that. We must. Well, that's because that's the ad We we have to. We We can only assume. We must cherish our history is what he says. He says we must must cherish our history and our future together. He says the two things. Our history, our common bonds as Americans. We must cherish our history is what he's saying after a protest. I hear you, Matt. At. A Robert E. Lee fucking statue. I hear you. Over the statue. And and this is Donald Trump in and he's not right. In which, it's not a matter of not right. This was written. This was written. He read what was written. Yeah. And he said that and he prioritized yeah, yeah. as an important thing to emphasize I get right now in a dispute over Confederate statues that we must, must, which is not a very libertarian word last I looked, we must cherish our history. No, we must, he actually said is, we must we must love each other, respect each other, and cherish our history together. Well, uh, this is but, but to what I'm is to is, I'm, is I'm, to you I'm know, acknowledging sentence diagram. I hear you. I'm acknowledging that your point of view could be right, but that is the most I can say for you, Matt. And and look, and my point of view is this: he doesn't name the protagonist in the speech. Matt, here's here's the rest of the story, right? What is the protagonist? The accident happened about an hour ago. The person was apprehended. At the same time he is talking, who is the protagonist here? 
what is the protagonist? Well, is it, the narrative is the narrative the, that someone act, was running? The actual over, answer in the, in yeah. the story is both sides. Well, this both is, sides are the subject in the speech. Is, this is not a both sides story. Well, this was this was a neo-Nazi rally well, we should in talk which about someone that. just yeah, yeah. died but was run fair. over by someone who appeared to be hostile. That's what we knew fair. at the time. I also don't think you give the benefit of the doubt to someone who has uh, cashed in their chips on that one. I, I, in, what, in what respect? Well, Donald Trump, it's, he's, it's not the first time we've heard him speak. I mean, if it was the first time I'd heard him speak, maybe I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. I've been hearing this guy mumbling and muttering inanities for how long now? A couple of years? Inanities, and, yeah. And I would say that, you know, the man doesn't any longer get the benefit of the doubt. I mean, Well, look, the benefit and the doubt in, in what respect? I'm, I'm saying I am actually agreeing with you that most of this is inane. And it yeah. doesn't seem particularly well crafted. The question becomes, was this carefully crafted in order to signal his support for these people? Who says this? Or, I, I didn't. This is this is actually so. So no. Well, there's two. There's actually no. This isn't a straw man, Matt. When you say when you say cherish our history together, you are investing history here with a very deliberate, purposeful intent. Is it not the thing to say? And it's just stupid. Or is it not the thing to say? And it is a, a subtle, in fact, according to many people in the pundit class, a literal nod to white supremacy. And I, I think it's fair to say that it's the wrong thing to say. It's the, that's it's that, the wrong thing to say. In, that's my argument. In that you it and is I agree. The wrong thing. In that to you say. and I agree. But, in that but, you here's the thing. Let's not get that's hung, hung up on that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's you know. I don't want to honor the history of a of a breakaway state that wanted to retain the institution of slavery and lost. You, you I, I don't. I still don't understand why we have to have statues for the I don't, losers. I don't. I don't, I don't either. I don't. I don't. I don't either. You but know, perhaps someone the, wants. If one. there's a Marshal Pétain statue somewhere yeah. in France, I suspect it probably has to do with his service in World War One. Um, He's pretty but, good then. But uh, yeah, <laughs> he had a bad switch at the end. Yeah. Um, but you Back know, it's, it's it's it's. It's the cascade of these things, mm -hmm. the wrong things to say. I mean, this is the thing uh, on, on Tuesday. Uh, um, the neo-Nazis started this in Charlottesville. They showed up in Charlottesville. Trump, excuse me. The reporter continues to protest the removal of that, and then Trump uh, interjects. You have some very bad people in that group. Right. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Yes, he says that again. You on had both people sides. in that group. I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue in the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. Mm -hmm. Talk about the wrong thing to say. I think that's, I mean, that I think that's probably <laughs> the most, that is the most egregious thing that he has said in the course of all of these events. Um, that it's incoherent in so many ways. It's, I mean, it's if, like, this is Donald Trump. I don't like the word me. offensive because it's just yeah. so flabby these days, but it's incoherent in so many ways. That I saw the same pictures as you did on TV. That's what he says. He says it to, in the sentence before that, there's some very good people in that group too. Uh -huh. Well, how the fuck do you know that by seeing pictures on TV? What I saw was a bunch of lumpy fat guys with fucking swastika tattoos on their necks <laughs> carrying shields. 
Some of them. You know what I divined from seeing that on television? That there was a gathering of hateful neo-Nazis approaching a Robert E. Lee statue. Mm -hmm. What more do you need to know? Well, actually. Nothing. Well, no. Nothing else. But there is plenty. There's plenty else that I might want to know. About that group in particular? Well, actually. About about, that group in particular? About all of the events that took place. Look at the person who who, uh, organized the rally. Yes, we should. You see see him. You see the things that he said. Richard Spencer is a deplorable person. And it's Absolutely. another guy too. And yeah. then there's three other ones, every single one. These people, you know, the other thing is that the, the, the word alt-right, people say, well, it's alt-right, you know, they call them white nationalists, they're not alt-right. Same difference, people. And the reason is, is because alt-right was a thing in a, in a, in a word effectively coined by people say Paul Gottfried or Richard yeah. Spencer. It's, and his it's first, still, his the first, meaning is fluid. Yeah. yeah. And his first website, was like, he had this like alt-right magazine, Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer is a neo-Nazi. There is a reason they're shouting blood and soil, which to people who don't know the history of Nazism, mm-hmm. which in German is Blut und Boden. And Bloden? Blut and Boden. Is... Boden. B-O-D-E-N. Boden. Yeah, is that the beginning of, of that Def Leppard song? Uh, yeah, that's what he did. <laughs> what, what did I say? Def Leppard song is Def Leppard song. Is Def Leppard the band with the guy with no Let's not get off track. No Because I don't think he's, he has one arm, but he's also not a Nazi, just for the record. But, you know, this is, if you see the organizers of this stuff. Matt, don't do that. When you yell these things in English, hail victory is Sieg Heil in German. Yes. You know, Sieg is victory. Yeah, yeah. You say, hail victory. When you say blood and soil, and then the really subtle stuff like Jew will not replace us. Yeah. And if you sit there and say, I saw the same pictures and, you know, there were some good people and I just don't want to denounce it. You know, this is, these are, this is white ISIS, right? It's the same thing. Mm. Of course it is. Mm. Of course it is. By the way, ideologically, the murderous desires that these people have. I am not saying they have the same capabilities. Of course they don't, not even close, Mm -hmm. but they are effectively the same thing. And I do not expect that Donald Trump in a situation where a Muslim man ran people over in a car would say, you know, it was a Muslim rally and there might've been a Salafist rally. It might've been, um, you know, an extreme, but they're, you know, essentially peaceful people. And there's some good people in there too, because, you know, Islamists, are largely nonviolent. People don't understand this. Is that <laughs> there are lots of violent sure. Islamists, but the ideological foundations of Islamism, most people don't act on this. And right. experts right, from right. all points on the spectrum of, of Islamism agree on this. That I think they're that's... effectively not a violent. There's there's a huge they're not not it's not a violent. It's a violent ideology and the practitioners of violence within it are a smaller uh, smaller percentage. That would be the same thing would be true of Nazism. I don't see a, a major difference between them. And I do not think that Donald Trump in any capacity yeah. would make any excuses for for Islamist terror if that happened in the same thing. And guess what? Islamist terror a lot recently like to do one really, really easy thing. Run over people in cars. Yeah. Let no, me, no, let just, me re- I think that's largely a fair point. Let me read one paragraph from John Podhoretz, uh, editor of Commentary Magazine, New York Post columnist. Um, talk. This gets to the point of what we knew Friday, um, let alone Saturday. So when uh, the, Donald Trump is talking about, I saw the same pictures you did, etc. The ad promoting the Unite the Right rally uh, uh had birds similar to the Nazi eagle in the sky over the marchers and Confederate flags taking the place of swastikas. Mm-hmm. 
It invited people to join speakers like Mike Enoch, who hosts a podcast called The Daily Showa. And August, Augustus Invictus, who I've talked about here, an alt-right figure who once said, I have prophesied for years that I was born for a great war, that if I did not witness the coming of the Second American Civil War, I would begin it myself. And Christopher Cantwell, who calls himself a, quote, fascist, unquote, along with Johnny Monoxide, who just labels himself fashy. And Michael Hill, an ex-professor who said in 2015, never underestimate the perfidy of the organized Jew. And Matt Heimbach, the aforementioned, who says only 27,000 Jews were killed in the Holocaust. So this is who we knew about was organizing Jesus. this beforehand. So yeah. to take that information, which is probably not that hard for a president of the United States to have some information for, about. For this president to uh, have information uh, about? Whatever. <laughs> uh, he's got a job to have information. It's not my job to excuse him for not uh, I, uh, accessing I'm it. Not, I'm not suggesting that Boston you do friends. it. I hear you. Um, and then to see the Tiki Torch rally. Um, which are the pictures that he was talking about with the reporters, and then to see the violent clashes, which culminated in a counter protester being r- run over by a car, uh, and then days later, after being criticized for all this, saying that they're fine people uh, in that part. Um, there's a reason why it's not just liberal media who says or is reacting to this with revulsion. There's a well, reason why there's a lot of Republican office holders. There's a lot of people who are never going to be confused for social justice warriors uh-huh. who find this reaction from the president to be awful. I, I totally understand the instinct. I get the it's emotion. Not an instinct. No, it's a actually, reaction. there's a difference. Instinct. A, a reaction. A reaction can be based on instinct as well. And quite frankly, when people hear something and they haven't listened to all of it, and they infer a great many things, and there are plenty of people doing a lot of inferring. When they heard Donald Trump say, "I, I, um, I." I condemn um, Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. They inferred that he didn't really mean it. That is instinct, right? So maybe, maybe you want to call it a reaction. I don't know that the mean, that the distinction is particularly meaningful. Um, what I'm suggesting is that there's something about this particular dude and something about these particular issues that make people less likely to be interested in anything like um, sort of the, the complexity of the situation. And when I say that, I'm not excusing white nationalism or anything else. I'm suggesting the following, that there is a distinction to be drawn between ideas that are pernicious and ugly and acts of violence. And there is a distinction to be drawn between a murder, vehicular homicide and assaults that are taking place. And it's worth recognizing that broadly speaking, that murder happened it's heinous and it's terrible and we condemn the individual responsible for it appropriately um, that assaults took place assaults that in some cases were perpetrated by um, members of the alt-right contingent and in other cases were perpetrated by members of the um, of the resistance, the crowd that had anti-fascist and regular people and Bernie Sanders supporters and whomever else and conservatives who are right thinking. I think the president is correct to say that there was violence on both sides. That much is also true. Like perhaps it's a bad idea to say it at that moment. There's no perhaps about it. It's likely to be misconstrued, but it's not unreasonable to acknowledge it. And it's certainly not unreasonable to acknowledge that it is part of a trend that we have seen like numerous attacks 
on citizens of this country for holding the wrong idea. And, and in that context, I don't mean the wrong idea as in being a Trump supporter is the wrong idea. I mean, I don't like your ideas. Therefore, I can punch you. Therefore, I can throw a cup of water in your face. Therefore, I can um, throw lighter fluid on you. Therefore, I can mace you. Therefore, I can stab you. Um, therefore, I can shoot you. Um, we have seen all of that this year. And when the president says it's not Donald Trump and it's not Barack Obama, if I am going to give him the most gracious and charitable reading, if I'm going to do that, because I have plenty of reasons to hate Donald Trump. I have plenty of things that I dislike about him, and I'm fine disliking him on those grounds. But the most charitable reading of that remark is, well, yeah, I do remember the baseball diamond shooting. And I do know that we find ourselves at a time when there is a woman who is attending a, a rally for Donald Trump and her great crime, and it is kind of a crime, is wearing a Make America Great Again hat and believing that this man can change her life for the better. And she's being spit on and she's surrounded by protesters who are shouting at her. I think that's bad. I also think it's bad when a white supremacist views that I think are abhorrent is walking down the middle of a street in participating in a protest at a rally that I think is gross and disgusting. I also think it's terrible when someone runs across the street and punches the man in his face. Both things are problematic. And it's worth pointing out that both of these things are taking place right now. I don't take pleasure in taking the side of the of the Nazi in that context. Um, and I don't take pleasure in making a distinction between identitarians who believe that race is real and are racial exclusivists and like a genuine neo-Nazi who teaches violence. I appreciate the, the, the distance between those two positions might seem short on particular days, but they are different things. And part of the reason I make that distinction is because a lot of my black friends, you could describe them as identitarians. Like they are aggressively pro-black. Like they believe that their race is wonderful and beautiful. They routinely talk about the accomplishments and attainments of their race. Um, they even, um, perhaps not when you're around, but even will talk about other members of other races in ways that are eh, make me pretty uncomfortable that I've often called out. It's routine. It happens all the time. I think that the similarities between identity politics as it is generally accepted in popular culture and the similarities between the thing that that many practitioners of the alt right are rightly condemned for. The similarities there make me uncomfortable. There's a, an interesting uh, couple of uh, pieces out about that. And I've been uh, trying to get uh, Jelani Cobb on the horn to, to talk about these things. I would love that. Um, uh, Wall Street Journal had an editorial there. Brendan O'Neill, uh, crazy Marxist libertarian who writes a spiked online, is always an interesting read. Has made uh, that exact uh, kind of uh, point of of the uh, the ways in which the alt right and the identity politics left uh, feed off each other. Now we have more of a sense of that. Now um, uh, I'm pointing this out more than necessarily agreeing with it, but it's definitely something to uh, to chew on. I would just point out. You know, we've had the show long enough now um, that I believe we were talking about uh, Barack Obama's uh, eulogy after the Dallas uh, we did police mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I criticize that, too. There's a time and place at that eulogy. The thing that he did that pissed me off is that he 
It is a eulogy for Dallas police officers, five of whom were assassinated. Yeah. It's a terrible, terrible act. Um, said, you know, it's really important to say that Black Lives Matter has a point and these police activists have a point. He's lecturing almost these people who are grieving for their lost loved ones in a police department that was as on the cutting edge of good uh, criminal justice reform as anybody else. There's just a time and a place issue. I think, you're, uh, and, I think that's fair. And I think a part of Trump's performance all week, and it wasn't just reading these statements as if it looked like and felt and smelt like a hostage video. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just, you know, the next day um, floating and then retweeting the float that he might pardon Joe Arpaio. Hmm. Wonder why him all, all of a sudden. Uh, uh, it wasn't all these kind of senses that were culminated in that shit show of a press conference. Um, uh, it's it's. You you get the sense that he just doesn't have it. He didn't have the sense of the moment and he's not going to have the sense of the moment because his ideology, to the extent that it exists, uh, is too favorable to people whose broad approach towards politics are similar to his own. I don't I don't think that he's trying to nod to people who he's afraid of crossing or mm -hmm. anything like that. I think he actually shares some of their concept that there is an intrinsic culture that is under threat and that he's the one who's going to defend it and that the media is overwhelmingly biased against him and they must be – I mean his uh, – he tweeted out on Monday or whatever um, uh, like, OK, I gave you your statement and you know, no matter what I say, the fake news is going to come after me. You could just – this, this probably – Call, That's probably true. On somebody in the, pro, in the in the news conference, and again, I mean, I just you know, this is probably a silly notion to a lot of people, but just an ounce of dignity in a press conference about you know a neo-Nazi riot in which somebody was murdered uh, would be great. So I mean, he, he called on somebody, he said, "You fake news, cut it out, sh shut up," or you know, stay, you know, he yelled at someone, referred to them as fake news. Yeah, and. I, I realized at that moment that Donald Trump sees the entire world through the prism of cable news. And, you know, it's been said a million times before. It's not a unique thought. But it is pretty interesting when you realize that all of these talking points are the talking are things that you that I had seen the previous couple days on Fox and Friends and mm -hmm. various you know clips that I had seen online is that you know this is a media battle to him he is waging a media war he thinks of this own like I mean you know when the he had a that readout of the call with the governor of Guam in which he said you know you're going to get a lot of press on this one it's going to make you like big and famous and uh -huh, get a lot uh -huh. of tourism yeah and it's that was a call. It wasn't even in public. He acts like that in private. I mean, this is somebody who is a sociopath. I mean, this completely bananas way of behaving. But this media battle is interesting in a couple of ways because – you see, most people say a couple hundred neo-Nazis. And I, as I said, the Swedish newspaper, Dagens Nyheter, reported that there were some Swedish neo-Nazis that traveled for it. David Duke traveled for it. The, the terrorist who killed the woman was, I believe, from Ohio. Is that right? Somewhere. People were traveling. And this is what they got. These dumb motherfuckers. They got 200 people <laughs> with fucking tiki torches. You know what? I'm an optimist, and it's, it's not denial of reality. It's just indulging my optimism. I feel okay that this poisonous ideology managed almost globally, if you have Swedes coming, mm -hmm. to get 200 people to gather around the statue 
of a man who lost the Civil War. Good for you guys. But when we clocked the place with cameras, there's probably more journalists there than there were protesters and counter-protesters. And then you have the Antifa rabble, too. But by the way, it, it's it's wrong to say, I think it's wrong to say that all the people counter-protesting were Antifa because it's also a yeah, college town. totally wrong. And there's a lot of people that just disagree with this stuff. Yeah, Heather Heyer is not an Antifa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heather, the, the, the girl that was murdered was not Antifa. So they, to say, like, you know, this is the Antifa, the, the, you see this argument from, yeah, yeah. from people like the Laura, what's her names of the world? And, and this, I, like, well, Antifa, they do this stuff too. They do. They, like, I've seen them rough people up and they're like morons too. And they, they're extremists. They cracked too. a CBS cameraman over the head on Sunday morning for recording um, one of their uh, counter protests, not in, um, not in this immediate area, but also in Virginia. Yeah. I mean, look, they're, they're, they're poisonous bullies too. I think of a of a different magnitude, but I mean, I mean, I think the Nazis are of a different magnitude. I mean, they they show up and they've got guns all over them, and these guys have pepper spray. I'd rather be squirted in the face with pepper spray, but <laughs> it doesn't make them decent people. Um, but you watching all this stuff unfold, and then you see the reaction to it. Is that there was a bunch of people tweeting the other day. Jeff Goldberg uh, tweeted this, and and like I, you know, I like Jeff and I have respect for him and everything, but this photo. Um, of the landing at, at, at oh, yeah. Normandy. Mm. And it was like, this is what anti-fascists This, uh, this is like. what the alt-left. This is what the alt-left looks like. Because you know? uh, Trump was name-checking the alt-left. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I mean, this, the alt-left is a stupid concept, too, because it's just, it's flabby and doesn't actually have any definition to it. But I don't believe if you have a, have a you know, gauges in your ear and, and a, a black T-shirt uh, wrapped around your face and a pipe in your hand and some some pepper spray in your back pocket yeah. that you're morally you equivalent don't, you don't to have... somebody who stormed you know uh, Juno Beach. Yeah. I think it's it's kind of silly that we're overstating it that way. But, but you also would... don't have the moral high ground. Uh, I suspect. No, like I mean I, I just wish all these I wish all these people would back off. Yeah. in the sense that you know. Like, let it fizzle out. I mean, we ha this is not new, by the way. And I think that things have gotten better. I mean, Skokie existed in the 1970s, which was a great test case for the ACLU. Um, you know, neo-Nazis, I mean, Alan Berg, the radio host, was murdered in the 1980s by neo-Nazis in Colorado. This, this is nothing new to it. There's always going to be this uh, very small, thankfully very small, hopefully very small yeah. segment of the population who has poisonous, racist, and um, and and murderous uh, views and genocidal views, eliminationist views about entire races of people, they will not be able to succeed, thank God. I mean, I, I, I do not think they'll be able to succeed in this country, but I know people... <laughs> I think that's a pretty safe bet. I think it's a safe bet, but in the context of what we've talked about here quite a bit, um, is that when, when everything is called white supremacy, mm -hmm. right? And then you see actual white supremacists marching on. It's it's very easy to make this kind of connection and say, well, there it is. And look at this. It looks like a, a you know a heaving crowd of people. But you know, it, relatively, it's. I mean, we have 330 million people in this country, and 200 Nazis showed up. Yeah. Um, I think that it could be a lot worse. I'm not happy that it exists at all, and that it's happy that it existed and handled the way it w way it was. But. 
You know, I mean, I do not believe that this portends a civil war. I don't think this is a harbinger of an America in utter and complete collapse. I mean, what would we have done? And this is a a counterfactual. It's a thought experiment. There's nothing you can say about it beyond think about it a little bit. What would we have done in the age of social media and the age of 24-hour cable news had the Murrah building been blown up in 2017? Oh my God. I don't know. I mean, th- th- that was a. I mean, that was a mass terror attack in yeah. the United States committed by a neo-Nazi. It was effectively. I mean, he's a neo-Nazi. Period. He was. He was a neo-Nazi. Um, but you know, what would that be like today? I think the danger beyond the danger of these people who have to be watched very closely, much in the same way that you know an Islamist, uh, violent Islamist, has to be watched closely. They're armed to the teeth, and they want to you know a white ethno state, mm-hmm. right? And they're they're waiting for this uh, civil war. They're waiting for their own time to seize power. It's never going to happen. But worry worry about that stuff. For sure. But also at the same time, keep some measure of perspective, walk away from the cable news and from Twitter and from all those things and say, what does this actually mean in the long run? Does it mean a lot? Does it mean a little? Uh, Pay attention to it for sure. But are we at the end point of American civilization? I don't think so. Well, that's certainly a sentiment that has been expressed multiple times. I saw that on Friday night. Folks were like, I just saw the end of America when they saw these people coming on campus with tiki torches from that vantage point, like as a young person on a college campus, seeing something like this, something that you thought could not perhaps happen. I could, I could get why that would be terrifying. Um, but uh, I'm remembering something that uh, Dan Beer, producer on the show, who does various things and is, is actually tweeting me now, um, sent me uh, an image um, that I'd seen before, uh, but was very uh, appropriate this week of 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden like, in Nazi regalia in New York City. Like That happened. That was oh, real. Um, yeah, um, and it happened. It happened um, multiple times. Well, it happened. It happened multiple times. That was the nineteen thirty-nine, uh-huh. I believe, and and it was the German American Bund, run by a guy named Fritz Kuhn. Um, Sweet man. And yeah, uh, Kuhn. K-U-H-N, I believe. And it was done in front of uh, enormous uh, portrait of George Washington. Yeah, and yeah. It was and it was trying to tie that the, you know, Nazism and uh, the founders uh, had uh, this in common. That's another thing to guard against. I mean, when you have these people, yeah. you know, Donald Trump talking about, well, they p- p- pull down George Washington next. If they think that they have some, some common ground with George Washington because they're going to focus on the fact that George Washington owns slaves and they would like to um, – there, that's something also to be, you know, ready to to, to yeah. battle because yeah, these yeah. are very different ideas and ideologies set in different times, obviously. But there's there's no overlap between them. I gotta say, it's, it was really fun, fun, strong word. It was uh, it was <laughs> unusual and interesting to uh, be kind of occasionally glancing at uh, Twitter on vacation. Uh, in Europe uh, and hearing all this talk about blood and soil. And it's not just these uh, martyrs and protesters. There's a kerfuffle in libertarian world between the kind of uh, paleo libertarian uh, crew in the uh, associated with the Mises Institute and uh, and then, you know, uh, us Cosmotarians at uh, Reason Cato. But in this particular case of the Libertarian Party, um, they're all yelling at each other like crazy uh, these days, partly because the president of the Mises Institute, Jeff Deist, I think you pronounce it, uh, 
gave a speech or wrote a piece, I think it's a speech uh, that you could see talking about, well, why not? What's, what's, what is the, what's, what's so bad about blood and soil, uh, uh, you know, nationalism and libertarianism? Why shouldn't they go well together? So this produced a lot of people uh, at each other's throats. But sitting there as I was near the triangle uh, border uh, of Switzerland and Germany and France in the Rhineland, uh, in a place where, you know, you cross six borders a day uh, and never show your passport and seeing all these Americans talk about blood and soil, it, it just like, uh, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Um, you know, the the notion that uh, that nationhood is uh, is defined somehow. And again, this is a, a notion that is shared by Donald Trump and people who are more neo-Nazi than Donald Trump is by a wide stretch. But the the notion of the, that the thing that defines the nation um, is something that can be policed at a border mm-hmm. um, uh, is pretty nonsensical when you're sitting in a place like that. You're sitting in Basel, Switzerland. You're on the border with France. Everyone in France over there in the border regions – <laughs> they don't. Uh, they don't fly the European flag around there. Why don't they fly the European flag around there? You, uh, this is quite unlike the rest of of uh, France. If you're in the middle of nowhere, France, you go to the local uh, mayor's office or whatever or city hall. Uh, they're going to have the French flag and the European flag, but not so much over there by the German-Swiss border. Why is that? Well, the European Union flag for them is Germans and fuck Germans. <laughs> uh, the Swiss there can't stand the French, the Frontelier, who uh, live in little shit towns like Saint Louis. Uh, Saint Louis uh, over there, and they commute every day in like uh, Tijuana Mexicans, and they work. Uh, they uh, described to me as they're 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 just like uh, you know your Mexicans. They come in there, uh, they're all French, and uh, uh, and uh, they work in Basel. They they all maintain very separate identities, and it's the same blood, it's the same soil, it's the same soil. Blood has been spilled for centuries. It stopped being spilled because blood and soil nationalism was decisively refuted and replaced by systems of exchange and tolerance and cooperation and mutual uh, mutual goodness. The fact that uh, both the neo-Nazi right and the uh, Donald Trump kind of sense of nationalism wants to limit that exchange and the mechanisms by which that happens in the name of preserving identity is so fucking backwards and mm-hmm. wrong about preserving things, even preserving separate identities. There are easily observable separate identities and separate outcomes economically and culturally in all three countries in a very small uh, area of, of town. So reading about blood and soil uh, nationalism in America and even for Fuck's sake, blood and soil libertarianism, as if such a thing. It's uh, not. It's really, not a thing. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. Um, uh, it's just. It's remarkable how blinkered people are. There, there are two um, sort of related things that I wanted to ask you guys about. Um, the first is. Um, the attacks on speech that has come about as a consequence of this. I mean, when and you mentioned Oklahoma City and what might happen. If something like that were to happen today, in fact, we we did see that the FBI apparently captured uh, a a kid who thought he was detonating a bomb um, just before this uh, horrible um, event unfolded on Saturday. Um, 
that hasn't gotten much coverage, but that's a pretty big deal that someone yeah. actually tried to carry out uh, a terrorist Appar- attack. Apparently, he was a paranoid schizophrenic. I uh-huh. saw something about that this morning. Well, he was and I, I, FBI often trapping people. When I saw this story, I thought to myself, oh. yeah, I wonder if that is uh, entrapment. He thought it was a bomb. It wasn't really. He thought he was detonating it. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, I mean, it's probably not The rest of that story I'd be interested just, in. Yeah. But, but in either case, yeah. I mean, I think the fundamental point here is like, you know, the the threats to free speech, the the response as a society um, where folks are interested in naming and shaming these people, which yeah. on some level I, I totally understand. Um, but the sort of boundary there, the person who was at the protest who was effectively forced to resign from the libertarian hot dog shop that he was working at. In Berkeley. It, I mean... What the fuck is a libertarian hot dog shop? <laughs> I don't know. In Berkeley? <laughs> I don't know. I, know. I give but, up on the world. You know, obviously these ideas are super pernicious, but it wasn't so long ago that you had uh, someone at Mozilla, Firefox, they make a browser, um, who his pernicious belief was that he was an evangelical and he didn't believe that gay marriage should be legal. I don't even know that he was talking about this at work. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But once it was found out, there was a campaign to get him fired as well. Um, the, The question, of course, with all that, all of that censorship is who makes determinations about which views are acceptable um, and which views are aren't. Um, and, you know, this isn't a free speech question um, in terms of the state regulating speech. This is about, I'm going to use the dreaded word, us. Um, it's, oh, this it's, is about it's, Americans. It's, it's a cultural, cultural free speech rather than First Amendment issue. I, I uh, was a... Uh, uh, interviewing uh, Popat, Ken White, uh, earlier today just on this topic, um, and uh, uh, both in terms of the naming and shaming that's going around on the um, uh, the uh, Charlottesville rally, and then also uh, companies like GoDaddy uh, kicking off uh, yeah. mm-hmm. people. Somebody and- asked me about this, by the way, at work uh, the other day, and we had a conversation, and I said, I, you know, you should talk to Ken White. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was actually... Uh, he was more rigid uh, uh, even than I would have expected by kind of rejecting the culture of free speech argument. He, he's saying like for his point of view – and I forget the term of art, but there's like a uh, – like the, the, there's a, a, a something like the first speaker benefit of the doubt um, that he sees as a bad thing, which hmm. we, we give too much deference to the first person who says a crazy thing or, or, or an awful thing because we're rightly concerned with uh, them being legally able to do that. And that's great. We should be we should preserve that. And in his mind, we should therefore also preserve people's uh, legal abilities to to the best of their ability, um, use the marketplace to forcefully counteract that speech. And if that means I mean, in this case, I don't have a big conflict uh, of like if you discover that mm-hmm. this person without a hood on at a neo-Nazi rally, sure, sure. if you want to publicize that person's name, um, that's fine. The problem obviously comes in when you publicize the wrong person, which happens which is constantly. Happened. New York Times had an article about, yeah. about uh, the other day. And, yeah. and that's bad. And it's not something that I would ever personally do. I would not be in the business of that. And I am generally not in the business of like uh, trying to get people fired from their jobs. I just think it's a bad look in general. But uh, the Popat thing was like, that is the marketplace of free speech as long as you're not making errors, as is from his point of view, um, when a tech company 
boots out the Daily Stormer. Look, this is a, qu- a conversation that I had uh, yesterday. There was a, a guy, I think it was at Hoover Institution, he read something about this, I think, for National Review, because hmm. I was looking some stuff up on this. And basically, a conservative saying you should regulate Google as a public utility. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Steve Bannon is, uh, is, is interested in doing that, too. Yeah, and it's, it's also because, I mean, there's a part of this that seems as if they want this to happen because they feel that there's a boomerang effect on the speech uh, <laughs> uh, that they want want to put out there. And, you know, look, if Google decides, if Twitter decides, uh, if Instagram decides, YouTube, et cetera, that your speech should not be available in this in this platform, it's their right to do so. But, it do, you know, it does have some effect. It's not a First Amendment issue, but it does have some effect on how you how you can distribute your, your stuff. Look, you can create a competitor to Twitter as the alt-right guys tried to do, and it just kind of was a little echo chamber. I mean, they want to reach a broader audience. That's why they want Twitter so bad. They don't want to be on a separate platform. Platform. So it does have an effect on, on, on how that stuff gets out there. But on the other hand, I mean, look, this is a business issue. Imagine if you're GoDaddy and you have 25 websites that are of B'nai B'rith organizations, of the ADL, of, you know, Jewish schools, whatever it might be. And they find out that they're inhabiting the same server space as the Daily Stormer, which is, um, you know, named in a, in a way after Der Stürmer, the Julius Streicher pornographic uh, newspaper that was run out of Nuremberg and just, you know, indulged Jew hatred literally in every issue. Um, and you don't want to be in that. You don't want to be there. Go somewhere else. I don't want to be – if you're hosting those guys, that is a – I would – I understand that decision. Uh-huh. And you lose those 25 sites to retain that one on some sort of you know vague free speech grounds. No, get them out of there. You're going to lose business because of it. It's a very simple issue. Is their speech actually affected? Over a period of days, then I would say, yeah, it actually is because they're offline trying to find a new host. Their DNS was uh, uh, registered with Google. Google, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were kicked off and then they tried to register Google and they kicked them off well, they too. They were using D- Google's DNS server? They were, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. something like that okay. and they kicked them off too. Is that if you have those, I mean, nobody would, would, would object if ISIS – you know, mm-hmm. was trying to register with GoDaddy and they said no. And they said, no, we're not going to host ISIS website. It's not a free speech issue, right? And essentially, when you have somebody like the Daily Stormer, who not only, this is the real tension you get with Holocaust deniers like the Daily Stormer, it's they deny that the Holocaust ever happened, but they wish it had. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a weird kind of thing. So they have a same kind of anti-Semitic genocidal idea too. I mean, obviously ISIS is much more dangerous because they actually have a... A, their own ethno state or religious state. Um, so, look, it, you know, this is the thing that comes up all the time. Like, they can make these private decisions and uh, as a private company, but, but also to, to realize that if Google wants to bury you um, in your company, they can do it. They can, they can make your company have a harder time mm-hmm. conducting business. So one has to consider that also. It's just not a First Amendment issue. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of um, this weekend I, I found myself watching, uh, first thing in the morning actually on, on Saturday, Steven Pinker and Elizabeth, uh, I believe her last name is Spelke. Um, they're both at Harvard mm-hmm. um, and they were having a debate on the science of gender. Um, what is is really interesting about this debate is the debate is from 2013, Mm -hmm. um, which means it was they disagreed stridently with one another, um, but they're friends. 
their yeah. colleagues. Yeah. He, they have actually both gotten one another hired at places. He brought her to MIT. She brought him to Harvard. Like they're friends. They work together. They disagree. And the disagreement was rich and watching the exchange was extremely re- rewarding. And I don't, I don't have a strong perspective on this issue. I've, I had been at a place um, a couple of years ago, and I, I warn against it here for for reasons of experience, where I would read, you know, folks that I happen to know um, or I'm fortunate enough to know personally, and you know, kind of feel like I can outsource my opinion on this matter to that person. They've read the studies. If he thinks that, I think it too. These days, I prefer to grab the study myself because the internet is amazing. And if you have the time, sometimes it's worth pushing through it and trying to decide. You've got what, so, like six months where you have time? Five yeah, months? Yeah, left. exactly. Enjoy um, it. Yeah. But there's something amazing about seeing like two really bright people have a well-informed conversation about something that you don't know well. Is it a little dangerous? Does it make some people uncomfortable? Yeah. But the conversation is so important and so useful. And that's the safe thing, right? What about the conversation with Richard Spencer? What about the conversation with people who have ideas that are deplorable, so deplorable, in fact, that most people aren't interested in understanding what they're saying, that the journalists who do, in fact, decide to sit down with Richard Spencer have never really listened to Richard Spencer's speeches. All they know is they have the moral high ground. He's a Nazi. They don't need to know anymore. That's I think it. that's right, actually. I, I know you're going to disagree with me on this. Uh-huh. I think that's absolutely right. Because I, if you are a journalist worth your salt, uh-huh. you know what Nazism is, and you know the ideological foundations of it, and you know the actual practical applications of it, too, which ended up not in just six million dead, but many more million on, you know, of other ethnicities on the, in, you know, in war, et cetera. So if someone is going to defend that, um, I am inclined not to listen because I know enough about the root of what he is interested in, what he himself is defending. I think there are more people in this country, I mean, far more Mm -hmm. people in this country that believe that 9-11 was an inside job than believe in Richard Spencer's form of Nazism. That is definitely true. Definitely true. And I, because of the number of people that actually hold these beliefs, I still am not going to sit down with somebody who's a 9-11 truther and hear them out. I have done passively, I've heard these people out over the years, and I know that it is different forms of mental illness, right? I, I, (laughs) that's, that's for somebody in, 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 Science, not yeah, somebody in yeah. journalism to 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 you know, or in psychology to to you know investigate, not me. Which which they have done. Which they have done, and yeah. there's a lot of actually really good good uh, kind of you know uh, papers, thoughts on why people believe in conspiracy theories. And I'm actually going uh, tomorrow morning very early to uh, do a conspiracy theory story about a conspiracy theorist, uh, and it should be pretty interesting. Um, you know, I'm willing to listen to that person. Mm-hmm. I am actually, um, but f- not for the same reasons. Um, and I won't say any more, thing more about it because I actually have to shoot it. Um, but you know, like I don't really believe that everyone should get the same platform. I don't believe there are two sides to every story. I don't believe that there's a second side to the Holocaust. There's one side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no. and and I think that Richard Spencer falls into that category of people that are 
you know, have some childhood issues that God knows what drove him towards that stupid haircut and his, you know, fake Austrian Alpen <laughs> outfits. But, you know, whatever it is, I'm not interested. Yeah. Whatever he's selling, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not even going to shop it. But the only reason that Spencer's name is known is because most of these fucking idiots usually get their so-called Nazism, whatever it is, in prison and the Aryan nations gangs and things like this, or they get hard-ons when they're watching Lenny Riefenstahl movies. Mm -hmm. These are not people typically that actually form a sentence. Richard Spencer is one of those people, but very dumb, very pernicious ideas often have very eloquent spokesmen. It doesn't mean that one has to routinely or even, even ever really engage them. I mean, I know that people would be like appalled to hear that, but it's it's not as if we don't engage them ever. We've engaged Nazism. We engaged mm -hmm. it with guns and we engaged it with debate. And at this point, if you're still confused about whether Nazism is a good or a bad thing, buddy, you got some problems. I would uh, I would uh, add my vociferous agreement with both of you, even though you seem to be opposed on this, which is to say that um, I agree that it's uh, it's not necessary in you know, I have a more uh, advanced uh, uh, sense of my time is is limited on this earth than Camille does. <laughs> <laughs> well, as uh, a black man, uh, well, that's true. It, it, it could happen any day for you. Um, yeah. Welcome but, to the gas station, actually. But I am interested, as uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, of where uh, what are some of the habits of thought and belief systems that overlap with a more significant segment of the population or or of the political class or whatever, or their history of ideas. How does uh, Pat Buchanan's 1992 run fit into modern day Trumpism and also the alt-right stuff? Where does the paleo-libertarian story, the late in life Murray Rothbard turn for the worse, uh, uh, fit into these things? I think those are- You said that to make me sad. I, I said that to make you uh, face face the truth, pal. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all of I think all of that is important, but the the, the way the, the way that uh, that I agree with you, uh, uh, Camille, is that people want to create a category. They actually want to create. They make the category bigger than it is. Right of deplorables, um, of everyone in that box or basket, as uh, Hillary Clinton had put it, um, <laughs> is beyond the pale and everything they do They're is- They're irredeemable. We is, don't need to talk to them or engage right. with their ideas. Um, and yeah. when you're doing that with 25% of the population even, or whatever the number is, um, that's a bad place to be because you're not going to know how they're going to act next. Yeah. We don't need to know how Richard Spencer is going to act next. That doesn't give us interesting or useful information, but we do need- to know how Steve or have some insight on how Steve Bannon thinks about stuff because he's near government and Donald Trump shares some of that belief system, which is unusual in a modern presidency and is part of what we have to wrap our minds around with with this particular guy. Um, but it's not necessary to totally figure out the psychological, you know, self destruction of these larping fucking Nazi doughboys. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really good point. I will I will say this about that's um, what it is. By the way, it's World that? War Two larping. Yeah, yeah it's really. it's fascist larping. Yeah. I'll say this about um, Richard Spencer. Um, he has an interesting haircut. Um, he is perhaps a, a slightly more stylish than most of the uh, of the Nazi folk um, that show up, um, or people or people who at least throw up um, Nazi uh, salutes. I think it's worth listening to what he is saying. Um, if only because it seems to resonate with 
a number of younger people in a way that I haven't really seen before. Um, the idea that Richard Spencer is articulating when he's not doing the Nazi salutes is not what most people think it is. It's not just the Jews are awful, white people are superior to black people. Like when I have seen him do his jujitsu on a not particularly competent journalist, it's not Holocaust denial. Of course it's not. he's he's using like a form of reverse engineered identity politics. He's just a salesman. I mean, somebody yeah, comes into your yeah. shop, by the way, uh-huh. and you're selling uh, something that you bought wholesale for $5 for right. $20. When they walk up to you, you don't say, I just added $15 to the price. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking sell it to them, right? You say, this is an amazing thing. You yeah. only get it here, et cetera. I mean, Richard Spencer is, of course, not going to lead with the Holocaust denial, which is why when you have the- In fact, the, he, he, but he, but he goes further than that. I'm saying that he has actually said, no, that was bad. Hitler did deplorable things. Well, this, I mean, here, this is what they do. Yeah. This is a classic of the genre. They don't, they will deny that 6 million Jews died. They'll say that the numbers are too high. They will say that people died in the camps and it was a typhus outbreak. Mm-hmm. They, they have all sorts of things and they do the what about ism and that it was both sides bad. Do you know what Nazis do? This is what Nazis do. You want to see a bigger rally, by yeah. the way? If you think fucking free speech should be a bridge to, to, to pre- prevent stuff like this, look at the rally that they have every year in Dresden mm. where you know, um, the official numbers are t- anywhere from 25 to 30,000 30, people died during an Allied bombing raid at the towards the end of the war. Neo-Nazis like David Irving say it was 200,000 people who died. That's nonsense. But either way, they say, what about the other Holocaust here of Germans? What about what happened to us? Which is effectively what Donald Trump is saying, too, by the way, of saying like, hey, you know, people died on both sides. There's both sides. Well, you know, not really. And I don't I'm not making this sort of Jeff Goldberg Point, point here that it's, that they're sort of morally equivalent. This is uh-huh. not the same thing. But what Holocaust deniers do is they say, you know, it was really bad all around. That's the dodge because it never allows you, it never puts you in a position where you have to have a moral reckoning right. with an ideology that is so poisonous that it resulted in a nation expanding across Europe and killing everyone and everything in its path that disagreed with it, right? I mean, this is what happens. And so you know the other the, the other end of this when people talk about you know eliminating or or you know sort of abridging speech. There was a kid who wrote an article saying, "Hey, let the alt right guys go. They have a right to protest." He was right about this. He was writing for the UVA paper. Mm-hmm. There was articles now in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and a few other outlets that I saw that he wrote a follow up. The kid's a sophomore. Who gives a shit what he thinks? But he, he, he wrote a follow up and said, "No, no, no. The, I, I was wrong. I was wrong." And he said that uh, the, these white nationalist groups, I think maybe because they said they, they were violent, they. they no longer, no longer, and perhaps never did qualify as protected speech. I've seen this a lot. The mm. woman that was the the founder of the Black Lives Matter hashtag said, this is hate speech, it's not protected speech. Yeah. First of all, none of this is true, and if you have even the most rudimentary uh, knowledge of the First Amendment, you understand it's not true. But to go the other way and say that this doesn't happen in places like Germany, this doesn't happen in places like France, et cetera, is utterly wrong and complete nonsense. You see rallies that are bigger, you see neo-Nazi murders all the time in Germany. Germany is not on the precipice of coming back as a Fourth Reich, but it happens. One has to be vigilant about it. And suppressing speech 
and saying we cannot read Mein Kampf, which has basically been banned in Germany. They've released a recent annotated edition in which there's an annotation that is even more boring than the, the actual content of the boring Mein Kampf. <laughs> People do not read this and get inspired to, to, to you know, join Nazi parties. If anything, it's the opposite. But they prevent people from reading this stuff because they want to prevent the ideas from spreading. It hasn't worked. You know, you have these Dresden marches. You have Front National in France, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, please don't say that we cannot protect bad speech. That is the purpose of protecting free speech yeah. is to not protect your ideas. It's to protect the shitty ideas that fat people with SS runes tattooed in the side of their heads hold. I don't like them. I don't want them. I don't want them in my neighborhood. I don't want them talking to my fucking kids. I, but it doesn't mean I want them in jail and I want them silenced. Well, I, I think I will append the DeRay conversation to the end of this because there are a few things about it that parallel um, like themes of this conversation. Um, and perhaps as a bit of a par uh, preamble to that, um, DeRay and I had a conversation that started with me talking to him about two uh, cases that are pending against him right now. Um, he is facing two lawsuits, one related to the shooting in Dallas um, by uh, someone who identified with uh, Black Lives Matter. I wouldn't say that they were a part of the movement, but assassinated multiple police officers in Dallas. And then there was another shooting in Baton Rouge, um, which I believe left one police officer dead mm -hmm. and another one um, crippled. And the the other police officer who survived is currently DeRay is among the people named in that suit. Um, and the suit is ostensibly placing blame with DeRay for inciting these people to violence. Jesus this is Christ. Effectively yep. a speech crime. And this is not the first, this is not the first time DeRay. Blue vest? Yeah. This is not the first time <laughs> DeRay. I'm sure you can incite a leaf off the sidewalk. <laughs> well, I mean, the think the thinking here is that, that the speech is hate speech. Like there, there is video of black lives matter, activists or people who went there for the protests. It's not everyone, but someone walking down the streets um, talking about pigs in a blanket um, and saying other things that seem violent. I have never myself heard DeRay call for violence against cops. And even if he had in that context, I am still not certain that it would be appropriate to have these lawsuits pending against him. So I opened the conversation by by sort of signaling my my support for him in that. The other thing, though, um, and this is just a bit of a dig, so he'll have to come back and defend himself. We'll see. Um, he asserted at some point that had um, black people showed up at a protest with guns um, the way that white nationalists did on Saturday, that they would have been arrested and this couldn't have happened. It just wouldn't have happened. And I first thought of the Panthers and that was a bit more contentious, but they did it. Um, and then I thought and about there was legislation more, uh, uh -huh. put forward to, to change it. it. Right. So they yeah. couldn't they couldn't yeah. come back. So he's right on that. Front. They couldn't come back there. But then I thought of the Huey P. Newton gun club, sure. um, which is. Texas a contemporary place. thing. I believe there was a video done um, with uh, our friend Thad Russell for reason um, featuring the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, which is group black folks who have protests and show up at places with very large, um, intimidating guns and don't end up going to jail afterwards. Um, there there are other examples of it. It is argument by anecdote um, to, to even suggest that this is a thing that can happen. So I throw that out there. Last point on Richard Spencer, um, and not because I think it's important to belabor this, but because there are kids 
who agree with him. I don't know that they're listening to this podcast, but I kind of hope they do. The identitarian perspective um, and the Richard Spencer's defense for his use of um, Nazi salutes and other slogans, uh, et cetera, is that he does it not because he, he sympathizes with or shares the views and beliefs and convictions of those people, um, but because he is routinely told that if he takes pride in his whiteness, if he takes pride in his white heritage, um, he's called a Nazi. So if you're going to call me that, fine, I'm a Nazi. See Kyle, Heil Trump. That's his defense. Um, personally, that defense isn't good enough. Um, if you think it's appropriate dis- to send gross and disgusting memes to people um, suggesting that they will be placed into uh, ovens because they are Jewish, you're a gross and despicable person. But being gross and despicable um, is not grounds to have someone punch you in the face. Mm -hmm. And it may make someone more likely to punch you in the face, so you should know that. When you do the memeing, um, so you only get so much sadness from me. Um, but that said, uh, I'm not looking to punch you in the face. Um, anyways, uh, throwing a bunch of stuff out there. Uh, feel like I you got to go to Portugal soapboxing, and I got to go to Portugal. Yeah, you guys got anything before we uh, run out of here? I got to go to Alaska tomorrow, and then oh. I, uh, you know, I might, I might be, uh, I might be off. Um, next week, I'm just telling you this, guys. Now, oh. you guys, this now. I might be uh, missing we'll next week, except while we're recording. Yeah, um, <laughs> people need to understand this. No, but I might be going to Russia in a week from. Uh, oh, and, and another week. I is just, this I, is this for the Putin interview? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really wish it was. The this Putin is the follow up to the Oliver Stone. Uh, uh, Morningham's going to make his own P tape. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I'm just going for a P tape. Just it's the P tape. Not, not not big problems. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, it yeah, does coincide yeah. with the big P. Three very strong. Yeah. So I don't. So I don't know. Maybe I'll. Maybe I'll. Uh, maybe I'll take a week off. I, no. Maybe I'll just join. Uh, next week I can probably be around. But um, uh, maybe I'll join from from Moscow. That would be amazing. Yeah, be so you're cool. you from Moscow. Me uh, from not next uh, week. Oh, not not next but week. The week, week after. After. I think, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll be back here. I don't know. We'll figure it out. All of these logistics are fascinating for our listeners. <laughs> However, I would like to end with a uh, recommendation. I was uh, taking a plane and I decided for some reason that I wanted to watch a bunch of movies that had something to do with Nazis. Mm. And uh, of the three that I watched, the one that was really good and I hadn't heard about it at all. It's called Django. It's about Django Reinhardt, the great uh, French gypsy guitar player. Uh, back not in to the be day. confused with Django Unchained. No, okay. it is not Django Unchained. Uh, uh, arguably, yes, it has, uh, he lays claim on being one of the best guitar players who've ever lived. Uh, you can get his recordings out there. But anyways, it's a movie about uh, his travails in uh, Paris uh, during uh, the German occupation. And, uh, and it's just a very moving, uh, small, interesting movie about uh, war and music and love and intrigue and weird stuff. And it's, uh, it's very good. Go watch it. Cool. I don't have any recommendations. <laughs> Shocking. I got nothing. We've done no book, no book recommendations or anything this week. That's pretty no, sad. No, I got, I got nothing. All right, I've fine. Just been, I've been drinking by myself. Well, drink your milk. <laughs> Stay in school. <laughs> bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. 
the fifth column. column, Ray, column again, thank you so column, much for joining me. Column, I appreciate column, you taking a little bit of time column, to talk. Um, I, I wanted to say out front that I know you have a legal situation pending um, and uh, persecuting people for speech crimes um, is uh, is a real mistake. My sort of sympathies are with the police officer who was injured, um, but I, I certainly don't think that's the appropriate course. So I, I hope you prevail there. Um, and uh, I hope the situation is resolved soon if it isn't already. Yeah, I appreciate it. So there are two lawsuits from officers in Baton Rouge, and there's another set of lawsuits from people in Dallas um, that we are still working through. So I hope, uh, hoping that they'll be resolved soon. And, uh, you know, this is a tactic that we've seen used against uh, people who have been doing work in civil rights for generations. So it's not new, uh, but it is still frustrating uh, and hoping that it resolves itself soon. Um, clearly, there's a, a lot going on in the news. I mean, last week, we actually had a, a brief conversation with Radley Balco uh, for the Washington Post, and we were talking a bit about the, the sort of anniversary of events in Ferguson. But now we have sort of these recent events in Charlottesville. Um, we I mean, August 2014, obviously very different than August 2017. But in some ways, we're still having a lot of the same conversations. How do you gauge the the progress um, or perhaps regression from then to now? Yeah, I think about the civil rights movement as a decade long award of activism. You know, I think about when we were in the street in Ferguson in August of 2014 and stayed for over 300 days in the streets, uh, that that is what caused so many other people across the country to stand in the street where they were. Uh, I know that in the past three years that the conversation has dramatically shifted, that in those early days, people thought there was a crisis in Ferguson. They didn't think that there was a crisis in America. And now we're having a national conversation about race, criminal justice, and the police in a way that we weren't before. So I think that we succeeded in changing the conversation. The question now is how do we change the system? And I think that that is the work that lies ahead, helping people sort of imagine a future that we can build together is harder than you, uh, harder than some people would think. Um, and understanding that, like a that the work of justice is not only ending oppression, right, or the work of resistance. So, so much of the work around Trump is just like mitigating the harm. It's like how do we stop the end of uh, Obamacare? How do we? make sure that like we still fund public education, those sort of things. But the other half of it is how do we build systems and structures that actually are equitable and are just. Why do you suspect that more durable things weren't accomplished at a, at a federal level during the Obama administration? I mean, there were a, a couple of years there, certainly at the beginning of his administration, where he had both houses of Congress and the White House. And towards the end of his administration, um, there was a great deal of activism and attention on these issues. Um, but so many of the the things that I might have expected um, the Justice Department and particularly sort of the federal government and the president himself to try to advance perhaps some sort of formal system for meaningfully tallying up the number of police shootings, uh, ratcheting down, um, if not just stopping outright sort of the surplus sale of military equipment to police departments. Why don't you why, why do you suspect more wasn't done? Or are you pleased with the amount of things that were accomplished? Yeah, so, um, you know, met with the president a few times and, and both um, and, and so many other leaders in the administration, uh, the attorney general, uh, attorney general Holder and attorney general Lynch and uh, Vanita Gupta, who led the civil rights division of the DOJ. And so many other people who were doing incredible work around this issue. Um, the, you know, the hard thing about the work with the police is that a we didn't the left didn't have or the White House wasn't. Um, let me just, just say it over that the left didn't have 
control of Congress, right? So any legislative wins around criminal justice, we just like weren't going to get, right? And the protests weren't wasn't swinging uh, Congress to like change their mind. There was a criminal justice package that came out, but some of it was actually not wholly productive. So like we weren't going to get uh, substantive wins in Congress, which became really clear. In terms of the federal government, is you know, there are 18,000 police departments in the country, and mm-hmm. the federal government could have used its financial lever to make police departments do different things, like collect data, some stuff like that. There's not there's not as much precedent around that as we would have liked, but we definitely pressed President Obama about it. I definitely talked to the administration about it. They had started to look at, at ways to do that. Remember that they did end uh, the program at the federal level that was – uh, funneling these weapons to local police departments. That was a huge win. They did some important work around prisons uh, and sort of uh, trans rights around mothers and women. So like there's some work around prisons and ending mass incarceration that actually was really productive. With the police, there's a task force in 21st century policing and uh, there were protesters on that. Brittany Packnett, um, a partner of mine from the earliest days in the street in Ferguson, she sat on the commission of the task force. Um, and that and that was uh, the recommendations they came with were really powerful. Now, I, I do think that the administration thought Hillary was going to win. So I think that they had they were doing like a really good setup so that she would take all of this infrastructure that they had worked to build. And then she would fight the good fight over the next four years. And then she lost. Right. And I think that they had not planned for that to happen with regard to. Uh, the data collection. So it was under Obama that the FBI made the first commitment to actually collect the data. It's still right. going to be lagged. It was pretty, it's, it was pretty toothless. Yeah, it was pretty toothless, though. I mean, there, there just wasn't any specifics. There weren't any specifics about how they would accomplish this. This was essentially just and it took them like several years. I mean, this was the very end of his administration when they made some sort of determination that they would uh, at least said that they were interested in collecting this information. But there was never any detail about how. Um, which was, uh, I think, a bit of yeah, a shame. So, so, I don't, so I don't know if it's like a – so, and this isn't even like a defense of the administration. I, you know, remember that this wasn't like a national issue until the protests. I don't know if it's I think that's true too. Like several yeah. years. I, I think that, um, you know, is that if the federal government's not going to use its financial lever to force police departments, there's not and, – and if there's not going to be a law that forces them, then there's actually like not much – there is less that they can require a police department. So the FBI data collection is like not, you know, we are, that is not right a gold standard. It is, and the data is going to be lagged too. So like, you know, we won't know the, the 16 numbers until maybe 18. So like, that's not helpful. There are a lot of things about that. Yeah. But I agree with you. They could have been more aggressive. I think that um, none of us had anticipated they would make any commitment. It'll be interesting to see if this FBI collects the, that collects the information, given that all the people from the Obama administration who helped lead that effort are gone. But I do think that, like, I think that some of the pace of the Obama administration, having been at the White House so many times around this, was like they were doing the setup that, like, I think what he would say is that they were they were leaving the White House, right? That they were they were leaving, so they didn't want to roll out grand things at the very end because they just weren't going to be sustainable. I do think that one of the things they didn't anticipate was her losing, and then, like, and then, you know, I remember her losing and then we all got convened at the White House and it was sort of a mad dash, right? Because all of a sudden it was like all the advocates were coming together trying to figure out like, what do we do in this moment? 
and there wasn't a plan at that time to think about how to withstand a Trump administration because that wasn't what people were planning towards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. I mean, I think, you know, I'll move away from national politics, but there were certainly some conservatives like Rand Paul who were interested in these issues. And I know uh, Charles Koch um, and his groups were were actually spending money on this and doing some advocacy around it. So, I mean, part of part of what I wonder about um, is the way that coalitions are built around issues of um, police reform um, and addressing mass incarceration. This is stuff that both one thing that you and I have in common, I'm sure we have many things in common, but is that we both are deeply concerned about these issues. And, and I've been talking about them for a long time in public. One of the concerns I've had, however, is that I think we have a tendency to talk about these issues narrowly with respect to race. Um, and a lot of that narrow conversation with respect to race, it seems, um, can have the effect of making it seem like race is the principal issue. Um, when in fact, you know, if we look at an issue like mass incarceration, were the United States to release every black and Latino person from prison, we would still have uh, something like the fourth or fifth largest prison population on, on the planet, um, which, which suggests to me that, you know, mass incarceration Quite obviously, whatever one can say about the way that we got to here is a problem that is far broader than race, which makes me wonder about the wisdom of couching a criminal justice reform movement um, and sort of discussing it narrowly with respect to race. Yeah, so, you know, I, I am not familiar with the statistic that you um, that you spoke about, so I don't have a comment about that. I, you know, I'd love to look at your backup uh, data on, on that from myself, but, you know, the reality is that what led to mass incarceration was race-based. So when we think about things like the war on drugs, when we think about uh, mandatory minimums, when we think about the crime bill, like those things came up in an era where uh, race was the way that people thought about uh, who deserved to be in prison and how they deserved to be treated when they were in prison. So when we think about even things that were corollaries to that, like welfare reform, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't poor white people, right? That were that were the public face of welfare reform, even though white people are disproportionately users of state aid across the country. It was the unemployed black mom, right? Like that would, the welfare mom was a black woman in the public image when we started to have that public conversation. So I think it's undeniable that race was the fulcrum by which we had the conversation about criminal justice or social, social welfare in this country, especially in the nineties that created the foundation for what we now call mass incarceration. And that across the country, there's a set of laws that actually perpetuate that, right? So we think about truth and sentencing laws, which are direct response to people feeling like parole boards were too lenient. When we think about things like civil asset forfeiture, that was a direct response to uh, what people either thought was organized crime or gangs that were uh, a people of color, right? We think about things like the criminalization of marijuana. It's like marijuana literally is not killing people. It's not, you know, and like mm -hmm. more people are dying from, um, alcohol, from sure. alcohol and yeah. from, and from, um, from cigarettes and they are from marijuana, but like the way that we uh, criminalize it has like led to so many people in state and local prisons. Um, and that race is the fulcrum by which it happened. So I, I, mean, I would love to live in a world where race wasn't something that was disproportionately impacting uh, people, but that is just not the world we live in today. Yeah, no. And, and look, the disparate impact, you know, there's no, there's no argument. Um, about 
the disparate impact. Um, but I mean, I, I think it, it is heavily debatable whether or not race was the fundamental reason why some of these things happened with both the crack epidemic of the 1980s um, and the first heroin epidemic in the 1970s, that there were both black um, black civil rights activists, black legislators and uh, people in black communities who supported a lot of those tough on crime policies. Um, and prior to getting some of those tougher on crime policies, the, the standard line was that the reason you won't enforce laws, uh, the reason you won't crack down on these criminals is because of racism. Um, and I think, you know, having a conversation that focuses on and, and I want to credit you for this, quite frankly, because I think you actually have done a good job of this with uh, Campaign Zero, um, talking about actual policy reforms rather than having conversations about around some of these other issues, which which, quite frankly, I think in a lot of ways are are a lot more subjective. And it is it is heavily debatable what most Americans are thinking about when they think about drug policy. I think when most people think about keeping hard drugs off the streets and keeping marijuana away from kids, um, they are operating from a, a lack of information about how drugs really work and what the consequences of prohibition are likely to be. Um, I don't think that they they want to just see uh, black people locked in, in cages um, and Certainly now, I mean, and even even seeing the situation in Charlottesville recently, um, there are plenty there are plenty more white folks um, on on the side of uh, the the protesters who are marching against these white nationalists than there are white nationalists um, vocally calling for um, all sorts of things. So it, it it seems it seems appropriate to kind of focus the conversation, I think, on on actual things that we might be able to get done rather than speculating about some of the other things that we can't. It just isn't. So like, uh, it's, this is uh, your, this line of argument is, is dangerous for so many reasons. Right. And the reason that it's dangerous is because without an honest accounting of how we get here, how we got here, it's hard to figure out how to get away from here. So when we think about things like um, the disparity between crack and cocaine, uh-huh. right. There is no explanation for that that isn't race. There's none. There's no, no but, reason but there why is. you would. There's no right. So like to to argue that like race wasn't the deciding. That's not that's not a debatable thing to me, right? Like, and whether black politicians support it or not, like doesn't make it not racist. Doesn't make the implementation of it like not deeply problematic and racist because black people thought it was uh, might have been a positive thing. We know that there were policy people during that era who were just wrong, right? Like people were wrong. People thought that mandatory minimums might be helpful. Like mm-hmm. they did. And and we know that like they were wrong, but things like crack, the crack cocaine disparity are, are a clear indication of race. Like I said, with the welfare mom, it is, it was not, when we think about social welfare um, and we think about what we owe people, it was not an image of like a cross section of America that was potentially abusing, um, abusing welfare it was literally a black woman like that was the image and that's like not an und- that's not a debatable thing about race to have so like i want to be clear that i think that this uh, the the questioning of whether race had an impact on the way we made changes to the criminal justice system and the social welfare system like that's not that's not debatable to me the second thing is uh, like I started is that like without accounting for that, like we can't actually undo the system in ways that make sense. So like we know that things like drug free school zones, which makes sense to a lot of people, mm-hmm. like on the surface, that sounds like a really 
productive way to think about it. We know that that has a disproportionate, a, dis, a disparate impact in low income and poor neighborhoods, right? Because if you criminalize, if you heavily criminalize drug activity with a thousand feet in front of a school, like in rural neighborhoods, like the school is not, you know, like isn't close to anything or like in the suburbs, there's not a lot of people living with a thousand feet of a school. And in cities, it's like every, you, that the whole city is a thousand feet within a school. Every mm-hmm. single place in Baltimore is within a thousand feet of a school building. Like mm-hmm. there are a million schools. So like that race played a part in all of that. And it is hard because in this moment, when we think about how to fix it. There are people who are denying the impact of race. And that matters that mostly because when we think about the solutions, they just like, aren't, they aren't also understanding the disparate impacts um, that the solutions need to account for. Yeah. Well, um, I'll move away from that and perhaps just return to something. I think what, what actually brought this conversation on at all, and hopefully this is something that we can continue. Maybe next time you make it to New York, we, we connect in, in person and do it in the studio. Um, but there's a tweet that you send out on a pretty regular basis. I love my blackness and yours. What does that mean to you? Uh, what, what is the origin of that tweet? And why is it important for you to, to return to that theme so frequently? Yep. So, um, I, I don't know. I remember tweeting it a long time ago. I tweeted it for what, three years now. Um, and it was just one day I was on Twitter and needed to uh, remind myself of the, the beauty of black culture in this country and my appreciation for, uh, the way that other people sort of operate in their blackness and that, uh, to be black is not just to be one thing, but black can be beautiful and complex, which is why I tweet it every day is both an affirmation to myself and to a larger community. And and what do you think about sort of racial identity more broadly? I mean, one of the responses that I've seen you get to that tweet is um, uh, about white people not really being able to make the same kind of professions of pride publicly. Uh, do you do you think it's appropriate that there is a double standard around that? Um, or is that is that something that you have kind of very specific ideas about who ought to and ought not to be able to express racial pride. Again, this is where language is important. It's not a double standard. We live in a country that celebrates whiteness at every turn. Mm-hmm. So when we think about, when we talk about the privilege of whiteness or the supremacy of whiteness or places like Charlottesville, it's only white people can walk into a town armed with AK-47s and have caches of guns all across the city and the police watch them do it. And that the governor said that one of the reasons why the police didn't intervene is because they were just so heavily armed. Is that only, only whiteness can to do that in this country. Nobody else could ever do that. I think about being in so many protests where like all I had was a cell phone and still got maced and tear gassed. And like, I, that was all I had. I wasn't a white man with the, I wasn't a black man with the, with an eight, with a assault rifle at my chest. Um, we think about what it means to be normal in this country, that that is racialized, that band-aids look like uh, white people's skin, not mine. You know, like the race is playing at every level in this country and has since its inception. So, uh, so we don't live in a country that has not celebrated whiteness. We definitely live in a country that has not celebrated blackness. And the tweet uh, is a response to that, is an affirmation about the celebration of a culture that was systemically and intentionally uprooted uh, and was worked uh, 
and that was structurally disadvantaged in a host of ways. We think about coming from the legacy of enslavement to today. We think about things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, redlining, so many things that this government intentionally did to people of color as a way uh, to secure oppression for generations. So uh, it's not a double standard. This is a country that has always celebrated whiteness. This is a country that has rarely celebrated blackness. And and is the appropriate response, I mean, given what race is, race is a, a social construct. It's something that was invented uh, in order to, to create division, to create uh, sort of these tribal loyalties and to, to denigrate one group. Um, do you think that there's anything odd uh, about the way that so many people invest their a sense of their value and self-worth in their racial identity, that they perpetuate this this fiction that was created by a, a government, let's say, um, and a group of people who were motivated by by pretty base instincts. Um, are we repurposing something? When we do that, um, or are we perhaps even unintentionally, inadvertently perpetuating the same sort of um, sort of tribal sentimentalism that existed when the idea was first created? You tell me. So money is also a social construct. Uh, are we in using money perpetuating a falsehood that is destroying people's lives every time we buy things. It's not the same or thing. I mean, money is a, a medium of exchange and it's, it's existed for a, for a very long time and lots of things can function as money. It's a construct though. It's, yeah. a, it's not like a given, like you breathing is a given, uh-huh. right? That's like, that is not, like, nobody constructed that. You existing is like a, uh-huh. you having like organs and a heart is like a given. Money is a total, so like people made up money, like just like people made up race. It is not a given. So no, it's not. They are they are actually very similar in the way they operate. So my, just like money, uh, people invested it with value. It has, uh, it means something today. Can we make it mean something different? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we don't deal with the fact that it has relevance and it uh, has a currency, for lack of a better word, with how it functions today and races the same way. Yeah, I think I think part of the issue, though, is that we we continue to invest in it, which gives it greater currency Um, and part of appreciating the, the various dynamics around race is acknowledging that a lot of what it does is obscure. Um, oftentimes, a lot of what it does yeah, is so with that is logic, then we polarize should, a lot we should of time. also disinvest with money. And I, and if you believe it's that, really then not, I'm, then we're, it's really not, time. that's really not, that's really not the same thing. Um, and I think there, there are plenty of ways for us to, to, to get around that, but I've kept you a while. I think you may have to run, but if you can stay longer, I'd love to talk longer. So you tell me. No, I do have to go. Okay. Um, but it was good to talk and I'm sure we'll do this again. All right. Well, you let me know when you, uh, when you'll be in New York, we'll get it set up. Sure. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yeah. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column, 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 column.